You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. Spurgeon has long been a hero of mine, uh, but even before Spurgeon was a hero, uh, William Ewart Gladstone uh, was a hero. And uh, I did A-level history, and uh, the feeling uh, came uh, across very much from the, the, the teacher that... Uh, uh, Disraeli uh, was the one you should admire, and that uh, Gladstone, well, he was just a typical Victorian uh, prig, a hypocrite. And um, I set to work to sort of debunk that uh, uh, theory. I knew that wasn't uh, the case. So I was uh, into uh, Gladstone and all things Victorian, uh, and then began to discover more about Spurgeon. Uh, and then some years later, it was uh, a great joy to discover that uh, Spurgeon and Gladstone had a number of uh, connections uh, to each other. Spurgeon called Gladstone his honoured chief. And as well as the connection that there is between nonconformity and the Liberal Party uh, in Victorian England, there was a particular personal uh, element to this uh, connection between uh, Spurgeon uh, and Gladstone. It's easy to forget how famous a public figure C.H. Spurgeon was in Victorian England. According to Patricia uh, Krupper, uh, who's an American uh, professor of history and has written uh, a thesis on Spurgeon and has a a good chapter on his uh, politics, she says his face was the blazing highlight of a fireworks spectacular at Crystal Palace. (coughs) He appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair. Madame Tussauds cast his portly image in wax. And I wondered then, having read that, whether Madame Tussauds keep any of the uh, waxworks that they make. I don't know. Um, I'm sure that uh, uh, it was uh, removed from display a long, long time ago, but whether it's kept or not, uh, I don't know. And uh, as a national figure, then, uh, Spurgeon's opinions were frequently sought and were frequently decisive with people who viewed politicians with suspicion. Uh, Spurgeon's views were solicited on almost every controversial issue of the day. For example, was Spurgeon opposed to pigeon shooting? Uh, What did he think about hoop skirts? What did he think about women in the pulpit? The answer was he was against each of those particular uh, things. If he expressed an opinion on capital punishment or vivisection, it was soon reported certainly through the nation and even worldwide. Uh, He was for capital punishment and against vivisection, by the way. It was said that in the 1880s, an American Sunday school child was asked, who's the Prime Minister of England? And the boy replied, Mr Spurgeon. (laughs) That may say a lot about ignorance in America, about the world beyond uh, their own borders, but it probably also does reflect the worldwide influence uh, and reputation of Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, in spheres uh, beyond the, uh, the spiritual. Mr Gladstone, who was Spurgeon's honoured chief, uh, had periods in office as Prime Minister between 1868 uh, and 1894. And whether Gladstone was in or out of office, uh, it was he who commanded the support and loyalty of the British nonconformist churches and their leaders most of the time. Certainly Spurgeon was an ardent 
champion of Gladstone's brand of liberalism. And there was a great personal admiration uh, and affection towards Gladstone, uh, and this was reciprocated. Certainly the two men um, operated, operated on very different wavelengths as far as ecclesiastical matters were concerned, but they were on exactly the same frequency when it came to public morality, and in some senses when it came to personal spirituality uh, as well. And this affinity uh, between the two played an important part in the nonconformists' electoral support for uh, the Liberal Party. Spurgeon was not one who subscribed to the notion held by some uh, that Christians, and especially ministers, should, ref- should remain aloof from, quotes, the grubby world uh, of politics. Uh, rather, he was convinced that the political sphere lay within the world to which Christians were called to be an influence for good. He wrote in 1879, It is not for the Christian to descend into the dirt and treachery of politics, but to draw politics up into the light and power of Christ. He writes in another place, Every God-fearing man should give his vote with as much devotion as he prays. Shame on Christians who don't vote. And shame on Christians who vote without praying. But that, those were my words rather than Spurgeon's, but his uh, sentiments. Certainly from the pulpit, Spurgeon was careful not, uh, in quotes, to sink the spiritual in the temporal. But, uh, as we'll see, he had no qualms about expressing political opinions and even exerting political pressure outside the pulpit. Nonconformists uh, looked increasingly to the Liberals, the party of progress, to further their own cause. And by contrast uh, to the United States, where evangelicalism uh, was and is frequently a force for political conservatism, uh, D.L. Moody, quotes, never had any doubt that the best man was always the candidate of the Republican Party. Well, different circumstances obtained in England, where you had the established church uh, and then the nonconformists, the dissenting churches. And Spurgeon makes a perceptive uh, comment uh, as a dissenter himself. We are made to do justice for others because we suffer injustice ourselves. Ecclesiastically then and politically, Spurgeon's outlook was that of the dissenter. And they're looking to the Liberal Party to further the dissenting cause. They regard Gladstone as the incarnation of the highest ideals of political morality. I want to examine in detail Spurgeon's political uh, involvement and draw some conclusions. But uh, before we do that, I want to uh, form a clear idea of the religious and the political context of Victorian England in which Spurgeon operated. And in doing that, I want to take a, a closer look at the figure of Gladstone and at Spurgeon's uh, relationship uh, with him. The Victorian age was one of incredible progress in many areas of the nation's life. In democratic uh, government, the uh, expansion of the uh, popular vote, the franchise, uh, social improvement measures, industrial Development and, of course, the expansion 
of the British Empire. But the Victorian age witnessed a catastrophic decline in evangelical uh, religion. In the early part of the century, it was evangelicalism that had been the main impulse, both in the Anglican churches and nonconformity. By the end of the 19th century, uh, evangelicalism had almost withered away. Modernism and higher criticism uh, had taken such a hold in the nonconformist denominations that they lost confidence in the biblical gospel. Somebody has said that the Calvinism of the Puritans and the revival preachers in the previous two centuries, uh, though fanned into flame by Spurgeon, was only smouldering embers as the 20th century dawned. Spurgeon, you will know, I'm sure, fought a rearguard action in the downgrade controversy in 1887, uh, but to no avail. Evangelical influence within the Church of England was at its height in the first half uh, of the century. In 1853, a quarter of all the clergy were evangelical, mainly thanks to the labours of Charles Simeon at Cambridge. But as the century progressed, the Oxford or the Tractarian movement, which had begun in the 1830s, began to spread a ritualistic and authoritarian emphasis in an effort to restate Anglican identity as they perceived threats to its privileges and status. Some of the clergy seceded to Rome. Uh, Many stayed within the Church of England as Anglo-Catholics. Certainly in the mid-Victorian era, uh, the nation had a finely developed uh, almost evangelical conscience. The historian uh, Richard Shannon writes that mid-Victorian Britain was a religious society in a deeper and completer sense than any Western country since the Reformation. In 1853, uh, the government called a national day of fasting and humiliation regarding the cholera epidemic. And then again in 1854 concerning the Crimean War. And then again another day for national uh, fasting and humiliation in 1857 uh, when the Indian, the Indian uh, mutiny occurred. We'll see more of that uh, later because Spurgeon was called on to, uh, to preach uh, and to lead the nation's devotions on that uh, occasion. When the um, Spectator magazine asked for the cause of the moral healthiness that was so evident in the nation, it concluded the chief distinction of this generation has been the revival of religious earnestness. And so mid-Victorian Britain was a society which still bore the imprint of God's mighty acts in the Great Awakening of the previous century, the so-called forgotten revivals between 1810 and 1820, and as recently as the 1859 uh, revival. Just as the Great Awakening was perhaps the single most important source of the moral energy which drove the anti-slavery agitation, so later revivals uh, contributed to the moral energy of Uh, For example, the Bulgarian atrocities agitation, which I'll deal with shortly. And then you had the campaigns of Moody and Sankey, which served to to heighten religious and moral uh, sensitivities. 
the nation's conscience was in a very real sense informed by the word of God. The Bulgarian horrors agitation then is an example of the the nation's conscience uh, at work. The Ottoman uh, Empire had uh, chosen to make an example of the Bulgarian people who'd uh, dared to rebel against their rule and Turkish irregular soldiers had gone in and committed terrible uh, atrocities. And again, the spectator writes as it surveys the uh, response uh, in Britain and the popular uh, uprising and the chain of public meetings. It says the moral feelings of the country have been gathering purity and force from the growing interest in those religious strifes which take little account of political expediency and make inconveniently sharp distinctions between right and wrong. Thus a large part of the nation has been silently, slowly and unconsciously learning to apply more rigorous moral tests to political actions. This was the golden age of the public meeting. In less than six weeks, nearly 500 formal addresses were made to the Foreign Office expressing abhorrence at the atrocities and demanding a change in the pro-Turkish policy of the Israelis' government. The nonconformists appealed to Gladstone to lead their uh, protest and their movement. They say to him, the enthusiasm and unanimity among all ranks and classes is most unparalleled. Half measures will not satisfy the people now. The indignation of the English nation is unbounded. It is for you, sir, to formulate, to direct, to lead this great wave of righteous indignation, to save a suffering and outraged people and render an inestimable service to religion and humanity. Gladstone's first main contribution was a pamphlet entitled The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East. 40,000 copies were sold within three days and 200,000 within a month. The ordinary people and also many of the nobility, the aristocracy, gave their backing to the cause of which Gladstone had become champion. Leading figures of the press, notably Delane at the Times and W.T. Stead of the Northern Echo at Darlington, expressed their support. To the very last, uh, Disraeli clung to his illusions about Turkey and continued to maintain it was in Britain's national interest to maintain the Turkish power. One anonymous writer suggested that Disraeli should be deprived of office and committed for two years to Mr Spurgeon's excellent reformatory, the Tabernacle at Newington. Eventually, the Bulgarian horrors protest movement uh, propelled Gladstone and the Liberals uh, back to 10 Downing Street in 1880 with a majority of 137 over the Tories. Britain was unique among all the European states in the strength and intensity of this movement. In Germany, for example, the Bulgarian horrors hardly caused a murmur. The German theologian Dollinger uh, was greatly struck by the agitation he witnessed in Britain and remarked it would be almost inconceivable in any 
continental country. Lord Derby uh, is reported to have said to Disraeli, foreigners don't know what to make of the movement, and I'm not surprised. So then uniquely uh, among uh, the nations uh, of Europe, uh, Britain's conscience was, was stirred uh, in righteous indignation. The conscience of the nation was evangelically informed. Barely a generation later, in 1894, thousands of Armenians were massacred uh, by the Turks. But despite attempts by many, including uh, Gladstone and other veterans of the Bulgarian horrors campaign to mobilise public opinion, there was no general swelling of public indignation as there had been before, rather a widespread apathy. The campaign uh, in 1894 left behind it, quotes, only a sense of disappointment and humiliation. There was a moral energy earlier in the century that drove the agitation then, which by 1894 had been almost totally sapped, its uh, foundations undermined by the inroads of liberalism into the nonconformist churches. A word then about the um, alliance, the relationship, the cooperation between the nonconformist churches and their leaders and the liberal party. It's a very striking feature of uh, the period between the late 1860s and the mid-1880s. The nonconformists were uh, aggrieved at the political, uh, religious and educational disabilities imposed on them by the Anglican establishment and only lifted gradually during the 19th century. Had Spurgeon felt the need to study for a degree at Oxford or Cambridge, as a dissenter, he could not have done so. No dissenter could hold public office until 1828, when the Test and Corporation Act was repealed. But it was the religious handicaps that most galled the nonconformists. They were liable for church rates, even though, according to the census of 1851, the Church of England only enjoyed a marginal numerical superiority over the dissenters. Dissenters were obliged to be married in the parish church, but could not be buried in its churchyard. These disabilities were more pronounced and more resented in country areas than in the towns and the cities. And uh, therefore Spurgeon, when he came to London in 1854, brought with him a healthy dislike, both for the Church of England and the Tory party, which was seen as upholding and defending the Anglican establishment. It was only natural that the nonconformists should look to the Liberals, the party of progress, to further their cause. Spurgeon's personal attachment to Gladstone was at the core of his loyalty to the Liberal Party. His own political creed matched that of Gladstone, peace, retrenchment, reform. I just want to um, examine uh, Gladstone's uh, life and career Uh, very briefly so that we know uh, more of him uh, and then uh, more of Spurgeon's relationship to him. Gladstone was born in Liverpool in 1809, the year of Abraham Lincoln's birth. He was of Scottish descent. His father was a prosperous merchant and his mother, who exerted a profound influence during William's childhood, was an evangelical believer. In later life, Gladstone recalls being taken by his parents as a child of six 
to seek the advice of Mr. Simeon at Cambridge as to the choice of a vicar for a church uh, at Seaforth near Liverpool, of which uh, Mr. Gladstone Senior was the benefactor. Gladstone was educated at Eton College and Christchurch, Oxford, from where he graduated with a double first in classics and mathematics. He entered Parliament as a Tory in 1833 and rose rapidly up the political ladder. Siding with Peel over the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846, he eventually identified with the emerging Liberal Party and demonstrated such ability that he became the obvious choice for leader after the demise of Palmerston in 1865. He was Prime Minister for a total of nearly 13 years in four different spells of office between 1868 and 1894. Gladstone's achievements were far-reaching. The Board of Trade in the 1840s, he oversaw the railway boom and was responsible for regulating the companies which ran the railways. He brought in the London Docks Act, which greatly improved the miserable working conditions of the London dockers. In the 1850s and 1860s, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he pursued classical liberal laissez-faire economic policies, reducing taxes and tariffs on imported goods, reducing public spending and bringing, quotes, moral enfranchisement to millions of ordinary people by the repeal of the paper duty, which for the first time brought books, uh, newspapers and pamphlets within the price range of working people. His government of 1868 to 74 achieved, quotes, the day's work of a giant. Vital reforms were carried through in many areas of national life, often in the teeth of establishment opposition. All the major branches of the civil service, except the foreign office, were opened up to competitive examination. Gladstone fulfilled his election pledge to reduce public expenditure from the high level at which the previous Tory administration had left it. In 1873, the country was spending no more than in 1868. And during those years, nearly £30 million of the national debt was paid off. Gladstone was a man of prodigious mental and physical energy, a man of high principle and profound conviction. He was also extremely complex and not as outwardly appealing as the more straightforward Spurgeon. Gladstone's primary motive was a sense of calling to carry out God's purposes in politics. For him, every issue, great or small, had a moral dimension. Two things especially were abhorrent to him, war and waste. The expenses of war, he wrote, are a moral check which it has pleased the Almighty to impose upon the militarism and lust for conquest that are inherent in so many nations. He had an acute sense of accountability to God right from the outset of his adult life. As he embarked on his career in politics, he wrote to his father that he was, quote, a being destined shortly to stand before the judgment seat of God and there give the decisive account of his actions. All experiences in public life, he related to his own sanctification. Gladstone kept um, a diary from very early on in his life, and they form, I think so far, 10 volumes published by the Oxford University Press. And they record uh, his inner 
spiritual struggles and his political outlook. Reflecting on one occasion, he writes, two things are ever before me, clear and unchanging, the unbounded goodness of God and my deep, deep, deep unworthiness. Gladstone's inner life seems to have been thoroughly evangelical. Uh, His statements on most of the major doctrines, uh, the inspiration, infallibility of the scriptures, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ, the eternal punishment of the wicked are orthodox. And yet uh, he couldn't be described as an evangelical. He remained a high church Anglican all his life. He held to baptismal regeneration. Gladstone was hopelessly ecumenical. Uh, He views the Church of England as being, quotes, in the centre of all the conflicting forms of Christianity. He clung to the vision that, quotes, in substance the movement termed evangelical and that falsely termed popish are parts of the one great and beneficent design of God and in their substance they will harmonise and cooperate. Gladstone firmly espoused the concept of national religion and held that the state's duty was to support the Church of England and tolerate the others. It is said of Gladstone that he pottered at theology all his life, but rarely understood the nature of any great theological question he ever handled. Spurgeon writes to Gladstone in 1869, As one among thousands, I've watched your career with an almost affectionate admiration. Not only because, for the most part, I have agreed with your politics, but because I've seen in you a man actuated by a sense of right in contradistinction to pitiful shifts of policy. In the matter of disestablishing the Church of Ireland, Spurgeon assured Gladstone of the dissenters' support and, quotes, the devout prayers of those to whom it is a matter of solemn conscience that our Lord's kingdom is not of this world. We see in you, he writes, an answer to many a fervent petition that the day may come when the church of Jesus may believe in her Lord's power and not in human alliances. Spurgeon closes uh, this letter to Gladstone. I do not expect even a line from your secretary to acknowledge this. It will content me for once in my life, to have said thank you and Godspeed to such a man. Yours very respectfully, C.H. Spurgeon. Gladstone, in turn, uh, there's evidence that he greatly admired Spurgeon, especially for his preaching and its testimony of sin and righteousness and judgment and, quote, its great earnestness and power. The beginning of um, 1882, uh, Gladstone uh, was then in his second spell as Prime Minister, replied to an invitation to come to the Metropolitan Tabernacle for a Sunday evening service and asked Spurgeon for a seat to be reserved for him. Spurgeon replied, I feel like a boy who is to preach with his father to listen to him. I shall not try to know that you are there at all, but just preach to my poor people a simple word which has held them in their thousands these 28 years. You do not know how those of us regard you who feel it is a joy to live when a premier believes in righteousness. 
We believe in no man's infallibility, but it is restful to be sure of one man's integrity. So on January the 8th, 1882, Gladstone and his son uh, William attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They met with Spurgeon in the vestry uh, and came out onto the platform uh, with him and uh, the elders uh, and deacons. Spurgeon preached from Mark 5, verse 30, a sermon entitled The Touch. Gladstone recorded in his diary, in the evening went with Willie to Mr Spurgeon's tabernacle, saw him before and after. There would be much to say upon it. Presumably good thing, since Gladstone had expressed his delight after the service. Now, Gladstone got into trouble for attending uh, the tabernacle. It was widely reported, despite uh, precautions to try to ensure that the visit was um, uh, kept secret. One succinct uh, comment uh, in the press was, Mr. Gladstone Spurgeonized. And one correspondent uh, writes in more detail about Gladstone's visit to the tabernacle. The visit of the most intellectual of the high church laymen to the most conspicuous nonconformist chapel in England is an event of historic interest. Two great moral personalities, the Premier and Mr Spurgeon, have accidentally fraternised within a dissenting enclosure. Why shouldn't Gladstone go and hear Spurgeon? The tabernacle pastor has turned Calvinism into poetry. He has made a morose faith musical. Uh, Other commentators attributed political motives to Gladstone's visit. In quotes, Mr Spurgeon is worth, in point of votes, at least two bishops. (laughs) The two men uh, rarely had the chance to uh, to meet uh, and talk, and either for reason of, of illness or sheer pressure of work, Spurgeon was unable to accept several invitations from Gladstone either to Downing Street or to Harden, uh, his country home near Chester. They did meet once at Downing Street. Uh, on this occasion, Gladstone pressed Spurgeon to stay on after the allotted time for their meeting had run out. In June 1884, uh, Spurgeon celebrated his 50th birthday and there were two uh, evenings of celebrations at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, those um, occasions went ahead despite anonymous uh, reports being received about a Fenian plot to blow up uh, the tabernacle. Uh, Spurgeon uh, was a known uh, opponent of, uh, of home rule for Ireland. And uh, the police posted a special guard for those uh, events at the tabernacle. Uh, at this uh, Golden Jubilee celebration, then, there were many tributes from colleagues and students and uh, members of Parliament, and there was a telegram from uh, Mr Gladstone. And uh, in it he asked to, quote, unite my voice with the voice uh, of thousands in acknowledging the singular power with which you have so long testified before the world and the splendid uprightness of public character and conduct. Spurgeon replied, among all the kind words which have been addressed to me this week, none has given me greater pleasure than yours. And when Spurgeon was in his final uh, illness, uh, he died in 1892, 
then it's um, clear that there was quite a, a deep uh, and close bond between the two men. Gladstone writes to Mrs. Spurgeon. In my own home, darkened at the present time, I've read with sad interest the daily account of Mr. Spurgeon's illness. And I cannot help conveying to you the earnest assurance of my sympathy with you and with him, and of my cordial admiration, not only of his splendid powers, but still more of his devoted and unfailing character. May I humbly commend you and him in all contingencies to the infinite stores of divine love and mercy. Mrs. Spurgeon uh, wrote a letter in reply, and Spurgeon himself was well enough just to add uh, a postscript in his own hand. Yours is a word of love, such as those only write who have been into the king's country and have seen much of his face. My heart's love to you. Well, Spurgeon became well known, not to say notorious, uh, as a liberal supporter. And it was not always easy for the public to draw a line between his role as the pastor of the tabernacle congregation and as a leading political dissenter. Various groups um, sought to use the tabernacle premises for public meetings. Spurgeon was very careful about who he uh, allowed to use the tabernacle uh, building. He was reluctant for its use by political associations or or pressure groups, although he was happy for its use by the Liberation Society, uh, a pressure group seeking the disestablishment of the Church uh, of England. Clearly, Spurgeon's political involvement was never at the expense of the interests of the faith and the kingdom of God, but there were definitely political issues which in Spurgeon's mind uh, obliged him to speak and register a protest. In 1884, he declared, whenever topics which touch upon the rights of man, righteousness, peace, and so on, come in my way, I endeavour to speak as emphatically as I can on the right side. It is a part of my religion to desire justice and freedom for all. Spurgeon had no qualms then about being publicly identified as a liberal supporter or about seen as uh, encouraging his people and anyone he could influence to vote for the Liberal Party. During a general election uh, campaign, a a man, a colleague, I believe, wrote to Spurgeon regretting that he should have descended, quotes, from his high and lofty position as a servant of God and preacher of the everlasting gospel into the defiled arena of party politics. Spurgeon replied, Your letter amuses me, because you are so evidently a rank Tory, (laughs) and so hearty in your political convictions that in spite of your religious scruples, you must needs interfere in politics and write to me. I can assure you that I vote as devoutly as I pray and feel it to be part of my love to God and to my neighbour to try and turn out the government whom your letter would lead me to let alone. You're as wrong as wrong can be in your notion. But as it keeps you from voting, I shall not try to convert you. (laughs) For I'm morally certain you would vote for the Tory candidate. In things divine, we are probably at one. 
and you shall abstain from voting as unto the Lord, and I will vote as unto the Lord, and we will both give him thanks. One occasion, uh, Spurgeon called into the polling station to vote. Uh, He was on his way to a preaching engagement. He was a little late arriving at the church. And on mentioning this to his friend John Offord, uh, whose pulpit he was to occupy, the friend exclaimed, to vote? But my dear brother, I thought you were a citizen of the new Jerusalem. So I am, replied Spurgeon. But my old man is a citizen of this world. (laughs) Ah, said the friend, but you should mortify your old man. That's exactly what I did, Spurgeon replied. For my old man is a Tory. (laughs) (laughs) And I made him vote for the Liberals. (laughs) In the general election of 1868, uh, taking up the cause of Irish disestablishment, Spurgeon urged uh, nonconformists to be looking out for dissenting representatives to send up to the next parliament. We must disendow the Irish church and abolish church rates at once. And to do this, there ought to be a strong nonconformist element in the house. Truth and righteousness demand of Christian electors that they should bestir themselves. The case against an established church was made by Spurgeon's example as well as his words, according to Patricia Kripper. She writes of him in 1869, he was the most popular preacher in the country, pastor of the largest independent congregation in the world and director of a, of a diversified philanthropic organisation. Everything he had accomplished he owed to his talents and the contributions of his followers. The state gave him no rates, no living, no cathedral. None of his institutions were subsidised by the state, yet all flourished. Churchmen grew weary of refuting his example. Bishop Wilberforce asked if he did not envy the nonconformists their Spurgeon, replied, it is written, thou shalt not, thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's ass. <laughs> Wilberforce uh, was also the source of another uh, famous Spurgeon joke, which did the rounds. What is the difference between Westminster Abbey and the Metropolitan Tabernacle? At the Abbey, The pulpit is in the nave, and at the tabernacle, the nave (laughs) is in the pulpit. Spurgeon then was um, energetically uh, opposed to the Church of England, and the feeling seems to have been uh, mutual. Uh, When Bishop Wilberforce played down the differences between nonconformists and Anglicans, Spurgeon nearly exploded. Does he really believe, he wrote in the sword and trowel, that there is no necessity for dissent from a church which has now become so like to the Antichrist of Rome that if a hue and cry were raised for Babylon's twin sister, she would certainly be arrested. It was Spurgeon's hope that uh, disestablishment of the church in Ireland was just the beginning of a programme of systematic eradication of church-state links. He writes, therefore, laying the axe at the root of the system, we demand the abolition of every union between church and state and the disallowance on the part of Caesar with things which belong to God. 
the overwhelming liberal victory in the general election of December 1868 uh, thrilled Spurgeon uh, and all the nonconformists. Uh, Irish disestablishment soon became law and still greater things were hoped for. One of the biggest issues in the Liberals' uh, reform programme of that government uh, uh, that excited the nonconformists was education. For Spurgeon and for dissenters generally, the voluntary principle applied equally to education as to the church. The state ought not to interfere. Provision of schools should be left to individuals, societies and churches. When the need for state education became pressing because of rapid population growth and the inadequacy uh, of private resources, uh, nonconformists did come to accept the idea of a state system but insisted that the state was not competent to give religious instruction. On this latter point, Spurgeon expressed his objection uh, on three grounds. Firstly, he personally disagreed with much of the doctrine that would be taught. Secondly, he believed that doctrinal instruction would be used to reinforce the religious establishment. Thirdly, he doubted that religious instruction in schools could ever be an effective influence to win the souls uh, of children. But Spurgeon would not accept banishing the Bible from the schools altogether. A compromise uh, was needed. In the end, the 1870 Education Act included a provision which allowed local school boards to include the Bible in the curriculum. Um, another major issue was, uh, was war and the, the belligerence, uh, as Spurgeon and others saw it, of the Israeli's government of 1874 to 1880. Uh, many nonconformists were outraged at the, the rise of, of the war spirit, the government's militaristic stance. It was the time of the musical uh, song, We Don't Want to Fight, but by Jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. Hence, Jingoism. And as the nation embarked on more and more imperialistic ventures in Afghanistan, South Africa and other places, Spurgeon was not afraid to express forthrightly his denunciation. We've invaded one country and then another with no better justification than the law of superior force on suspicion of future danger. We have meddled in many things and have threatened at least three of the great quarters of the globe, either with our fleets or our armies. Spurgeon was reported in the Times in November 1876 as praying, quotes, that the extraordinary folly of our leaders would not lead this country into war. Change our rulers, O God, as soon as possible. Spurgeon knew, however, that he was swimming against the tide of prevailing public opinion, which, in his words, was calling for a warlike policy as loudly as if it involved no slaughter and were rather a boon to mankind than an unmitigated curse. A mysterious argument founded upon the protection of certain mythical British interests is set up as an excuse, but the fact is that the national bulldog wants to fix his teeth into somebody's leg. Spurgeon loathed war as much as Gladstone did. For him it was an unutterable evil, a curse to humanity, a pestilence to nations, and frequently an atrocity which excuses cannot palliate or eloquence conceal. 
Spurgeon had first-hand experience with uh, English soldiers during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and the suffering he witnessed there left an indelible mark in his mind. In later years, Spurgeon did not share in the public's near adoration of General Gordon. When war begins, Spurgeon writes, hell opens. There were nevertheless uh, justifications for war which Spurgeon uh, held to. Uh, Firstly, because governments are God's instruments and governments have deemed war necessary. Secondly, because of sin, war will not cease until the reign of Christ with his second coming. Thirdly, wars are permitted by God for necessary and useful purposes. Fourthly, because war may be the last resort of an oppressed people. Some Christians argue that the great expansion of Protestant missions owed much to military aggression, opening up the way for heathen lands to receive the gospel. As early as 1854, at the outset of his ministry, Spurgeon strongly rejected the idea that the gospel could be spread by conquest. Whenever England goes to war, many shout, it will open a way for the gospel. I cannot understand how the devil is to make way for Christ. And what is war but an incarnate fiend, the impersonation of all that is hellish in fallen humanity? For English canon to make way for an English missionary is a lie too glaring for me to believe for a moment. I cannot comprehend the Christianity which talks thus of murder and robbery. I blush for my country when I see it committing such terrible crimes in China. For what is the opium traffic but an enormous crime? Just a word about um, then the explicitness of Spurgeon's campaigning on behalf of uh, uh, the Liberals. He campaigned actively in the 1880 uh, general election campaign. He urged the formation of Christian consultation committees in each parliamentary constituency to advise the electorate. In his local constituency of Southwark, he publicly endorsed the two Liberal candidates. Uh, One night he found that the fences around his house had been painted blue, Uh, obviously the Tory colour, and from the pulpit uh, then he explained he was no Tory and pleased with the perpetrators remove the paint when it had been there long enough to please them. Spurgeon threw everything he had behind the Liberal cause and the subsequent Liberal victory in that seat was commonly attributed to Spurgeon's efforts, not least his posters attacking one of the Tory candidates for paying his workers paltry wages. Spurgeon was also busy in the neighbouring constituency, Lambeth, where, as quotes your friend and neighbour, C.H. Spurgeon, he addressed the electors. And this is what, uh, part of what he said. If you sorrow over the warlike policy which has thrust might into the place of right and invaded weak nations with but scant excuse, then return the two candidates who were opposed to the Beaconsfield uh, Disraeli ministry. Do you believe that constant bluster creates political uneasiness and disturbs our peaceful relations with other nations and thus hinders trade and commerce? Then send to Parliament Liberal candidates to strengthen the hands of Mr Gladstone. Do you believe that great questions of progress at home should no longer be pushed into a corner? Then increase the number of men who are in the advance guard of liberty. Lovers of religious equality, your course is plain. 
with hands and heart, support the men who would rid religion of state patronage and control. You who would ease the national burdens by economy and retrenchment, vote for Messrs Arthur and Lawrence. Imagine another six years of Tory rule, devoid alike of peace and progress, and you will rouse yourself to do your duty. A reporter for the weekly dispatch declared in November 1879, Mr Spurgeon continues to be the greatest single influence in South London in favour of liberalism. At elections, school boards and parliamentary, his followers display an energy and discipline which leaves nothing to be desired. It would be hard to find a better radical than Mr Spurgeon. To Spurgeon, the religious beliefs or lack of them of any parliamentary candidate were immaterial as far as the elector's choice uh, was concerned. And he defended the uh, aforementioned Mr Lawrence when, uh, in 1868, the Tories accused him of heterodoxy. Spurgeon says, At an election, if a man is solid in other respects, we cannot discuss his soundness in theology. To do so would be persecution. It is one of our first principles that a man's civil rights are not affected by his religion. If the office sought had been that of teacher of religion, we should have examined the candidate with the Westminster Confession. But as the duties were such as any honest liberal can discharge, we did not note the colour of Mr Lawrence's hair, his views on the planet Jupiter, or his opinions upon the origin of the species. For a horde of graceless Tories to set up for defenders of orthodoxy is a transparent piece of hypocrisy. And then in a similar vein, in 1880, against prevailing nonconformist opinion, Spurgeon defended the rights of the atheist Charles Bradlaugh uh, to take his seat in the House of Commons. House of Commons. And uh, for this stand, he received a tribute from Annie Besant, writing in the National Reformer. Mr Spurgeon's religion belongs to a manlier order. No one can question his intense abhorrence of Mr Bradlaugh's atheism. But being a liberal in fact, instead of only in name, he calmly declared to the bigots who attacked him that people of every faith and people of no faith had a right to parliamentary representation. Mr Spurgeon belongs to the order of vertebrata, not to the mollusca. Uh, the one issue where uh, Spurgeon and uh, the Liberal Party parted company was home rule for Ireland, uh, an issue which dominated the latter part of Gladstone's political career. Uh, Spurgeon was passionately opposed to home rule for Ireland and felt that Gladstone, who was equally passionate for home rule, was making an enormous mistake in proposing to grant self-government to Ireland. With 80% of the population Roman Catholic, home rule would be bound to produce, in effect, Rome rule. The press at the time made much of Spurgeon's opposition to home rule. He was reported as saying uh, in Cardiff, I feel especially the wrong proposed to be done to our Ulster brethren. What have they done to be thus cast off? The whole scheme of home rule is full of dangers and absurdities as if it had come from a madman. And yet, I'm sure Mr Gladstone believes he's only doing justice and acting for the good of all. I consider him to be making one of those mistakes which can only be made by great 
and well-meaning men. These comments found their way into the national papers uh, and even posters on the London streets. And uh, the phrase, as if it had come from a madman, uh, was highlighted. Uh, You can imagine the headline, Spurgeon accuses PM of madness. Uh, the Daily News uh, commented, it may help Mr Spurgeon to be more guarded in his utterances, to learn that his recent charge of madness against Mr Gladstone is placarded all over Bristol today. Spurgeon, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, became in effect um, a spokesman for uh, the nation uh, when he was as young as 23 years old in 18. 18- 57. And it could be argued this was his finest hour, his most important sermon. And it was the fast day service held at the Crystal Palace on the evening of Wednesday, the 7th of October. It was a congregation uh, reckoned to be 23,654 souls. The government had proclaimed uh, a day, quotes, for a solemn fast humiliation and prayer before Almighty God in order to obtain pardon of our sins and for imploring his blessing and assistance on our arms for the restoration of tranquility in India. Spurgeon's uh, position was such uh, already that he was the uh, automatic choice to lead the nation's devotions at this fast day uh, service. It was a time of national introspection, Uh, somewhat unusual in the Victorian age. The Indian mutiny uh, was regarded as a national uh, disaster. Uh, And uh, Spurgeon uh, focused and sharpened that sense uh, into a blow from God's rod of chastisement against Britain for her sins. Certainly the episode was a very severe dent to the self-confidence of uh, what was a, a prosperous and victorious nation. Earlier in that day, Spurgeon visited the Crystal Palace to test the acoustics. And workmen were there erecting scaffolding and banks, terraces of seating to accommodate the expected congregation. And Spurgeon, more or less at random, chose a Bible verse to test his voice. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. One of the workmen was converted as a direct result of hearing uh, those words. Spurgeon was almost overwhelmed by this huge task. Before the service began, he asked one of the deacons to ask his young wife to move to a position from where she would not be able to see him. The whole uh, experience exhausted Spurgeon. The ordeal of publicly uh, praying on an occasion like this and preaching In such a setting, he went to bed on the Wednesday night and when he woke up again, it was Friday morning. Just listen to some uh, snatches of his ministry that evening. Not Israel itself could boast a nobler history than we, measuring it by God's bounties. We have not yet forgotten an armada scattered before the breath of heaven, scattered upon the angry deep, as a trophy of what God can do to protect his favoured isle. We have not yet forgotten a 5th of November, wherein God discovered 
diverse plots that were formed against our religion and our commonwealth. We have not yet lost the old men whose tales of even the victories in war are still a frequent story. We remember how God swept before our armies the man who thought to make the world his dominion, who designed to cast his shoe over Britain and make it a dependency of his kingdom. He's talking about Napoleon, but of course you could take the words uh, later on to refer to Hitler. God wrought for us, he wrought with us, and he will continue to do so. Cradle of liberty, refuge of distress. Storms may rage around thee, but not upon thee. Nor shall all the wrath and fury of men destroy thee, for God hath pitched his tabernacle in thy midst, and his saints are the salt in the midst of thee. But, O Lord, it is ours this day to humble ourselves before thee. We are a sinful nation. For all our rebellions and transgressions, O God, have mercy upon us. Lord, save us. Lord, arise and bless us. God, save the Queen. A thousand blessings on her much-loved head. God, preserve our country. Bless England, O our God. Shine, mighty God, on Britain, shine. Of course, the, the corollary of what Spurgeon sees as this privileged status is uh, judgment that comes from the hand of God. And he says this. He's preaching on uh, a verse from uh, uh, Micah. Hear the rod and who has appointed it. I feel persuaded that there are such things as national judgments, national chastisements for national sins, great blows from the hand of God, which every wise man must acknowledge to be either a punishment of sin committed or a monition to warn us to a sense of the consequences of sins, leading us by God's grace to humiliate ourselves and repent of our sin. He says later, now it is an opinion published by authority, and who am I that I should dispute the great authorities of England? That one part of the reason for this dreadful visitation is the sin of the people of England themselves. O Britain, weep for deeds which thy governors have not yet strength of mind to stop. He addresses then the sins of particular classes. He addresses the the sins of the factory owners, the sins of the wealthy. Uh, He sees the poorer people smiling as he addresses the rich, so he turns his guns on the poor and uh, uh, identifies and condemns the sins of the poor. He says this about the merchants. Was there ever an age when the merchants of England had more fallen from their integrity? We can trust none in these times. Ye heap up your companies, ye delude your myriads, ye gather the money of fools, ye scatter it to the winds of heaven. And when the poor call upon you, ye tell them it is gone. But where? Later again, it is impossible for me today to enter into all the sins of illiberality, of deceit, of bigotry, of lasciviousness, of carnality, of covetousness, and of laziness which infest this land. I am afraid, though he concludes, that it is the church that has been the greatest sinner. For how many and many a year pulpits have never condescended to men of low estate. 
The churches themselves slumbered. They wrapped themselves in a shroud of orthodoxy and slept right on. And while Satan was devouring the world and taking his prey, the church sat still and said, who is my neighbour? Just um, very briefly, um, there are some uh, conclusions to draw, uh, just to summarise Spurgeon's uh, approach to uh, politics and to government and to the Christian's uh, responsibility. Firstly, he certainly believes in a comprehensive Christian morality, a full-orbed Christian morality. He believes in the relevance and the applicability of Christian standards of the law of God, uh, the demands of which embrace not only individual behaviour but the conduct of government policy towards other nations, not just the family, also the cabinet. And he sees it as the church's task to, uh, to speak out, to address with a prophetic voice uh, the government uh, of the day. Secondly, he believes in a fully sufficient gospel. Uh, with absolute conviction, he urged uh, men to come to Christ. When a man is saved, he becomes moral. Uh, regarding drunkenness, for example, Spurgeon says the best way to make a man sober is to bring him to the foot of the cross. There was absolute confidence on Spurgeon's part in the power of the gospel of God uh, to save sinners. And he knew uh, that change in society for the better arises from a work of God that accompanies the preaching of the biblical gospel. Also, thirdly, he acknowledged the vulnerability of the church uh, in this present age, that trials and struggles are normal. The church will have to fight to make its voice heard. The church would have to rely on her Lord and not on human alliances. Fourthly, he believed in the rightness of uh, seeking to influence government through legitimate protest and pressure. He was, in that sense, an activist. You'll know, I'm sure, the the contrast between Nehemiah and Ezra, faced with the the sins of the nation uh, and how uh, Nehemiah was the activist, uh, whereas Ezra sat down appalled, although uh, there were those that gathered with him. Uh, Spurgeon was a Nehemiah, uh, an activist. Uh, Fifthly, Spurgeon believed in seeking to influence God by supplicatory and intercessory prayer, pleading with God to intervene for his glory. He was a passionate campaigner, but a passionate prayer. Sixthly, Spurgeon was a great patriot, full of devotion for his country. Surely that's an honourable, a good, a noble thing. And how much he felt the reproach that sin was to the Britain in which he ministered. And then uh, seventhly, uh, what motivated and uh, what characterised Spurgeon is, of course, utter devotion to Christ, unqualified commitment to Christ. He regarded it as his duty and privilege to exhaust his life in the cause of the Saviour. Every faculty, every opportunity must be used. He writes, I feel that if I could live a thousand lives, I would like to live them all for Christ. 
And I should even then feel that they were all too little a return for his great love to me. Thank you very much indeed for that. I'm sure you agree that we've seen another perspective on the life of someone who is idolized by some people today, I think. What a mighty man he was. Mm. Has there been or is there at this moment anybody who can take his place? That's I think very... we heard that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think... That, that's a very fair point, and um, much of what Spurgeon achieved w- was, was due to his, the sheer force of his personality um, uh, uh, under God. And um, it's very hard, isn't it, to envisage that there could be anyone of Spurgeon's stamp um, in the future. Um, ought we to pray that God would raise up somebody yes. like Spurgeon, yes. um, somebody that would have a, a voice that would be heard? It, it's, um, the whole system, of course, the whole context has changed so much since Spurgeon's time and certainly in the realm of politics you know the party machinery is much more rigid nowadays and influence uh, uh, and pressure is is harder Um, but yes um, somebody like Spurgeon somebody that was raised up although it's inconceivable to us from where we are now why could not God raise up somebody of that ilk um, again just briefly Mm -hmm. if Charles Haddon Spurgeon were alive today and preaching today, what do you think would be the issues that were burning in his heart? If Spurgeon were alive today, what issues would he be concerned about? Would burn his heart? Well, I would have thought that because the um, the Christian Institute uh, shares in, in more or less every respect um, Spurgeon's gospel and Spurgeon's theology. Um, that the issues on which the Christian Institute campaigns would all be issues that would be on Spurgeon's agenda. I, I'm sure they would be. Um, I, I wonder if you could tell me, do, do, when, when Spurgeon was speaking out on these things, was he mm. speaking out from the pulpit to his own congregation? Mm. Um, or was he speaking out at public meetings? I, I think never from the pulpit. I, I, I think that um, he would use the sword and trowel, um, the, um, which I think came out weekly, um, that would be the vehicle of making his views known and, um, and then at other meetings outside a church uh, context. But I'm fairly convinced that never from the, the pulpit itself. I was very impressed by your essay, Tim, that I, that I read, and I thought this is a Spurgeon that most people have never heard of at all. Uh, un- until then, I'd heard of so much about his orphanages, his publishing, mm. the way in which he trained pastors. Um, mm. I feel a little bit uncomfortable about his identification. I feel it was a little bit too close. I wonder what your view was of his identification with the Liberal Party. <laughs> I think, I mean, the, um, the consensus today would, would, would be that it's, um, well, a taboo subject, isn't it? If you hear Christians talk about political allegiances, um, it's the subject of sort of speculation, rumour, and people very rarely talk directly. Um, and you're guessing about, oh, so-and-so is a bit uh, on the socialist side, or he's left-leaning, or he's right-leaning. Um, yes, um, of course, the, the boundaries between the parties and the issues that political parties stand for, of course, have changed over time. And certainly from Spurgeon's point of view, um, all his aspirations in terms of uh, moral standards and behaviour 
and the way a nation ought to be governed, you know, were present in the Liberal Party and particularly in, uh, uh, in Gladstone. And it was relatively straightforward for him and he, therefore he, felt he had no qualms in uh, openly espousing the, the Liberal Party. Um, whereas today I think it's much, much more difficult to choose um, in terms of moral issues between the different parties. I don't know if there's any one political party that you could say, you know, ought to command the respect of Christians. I wouldn't say so. Your Spurgeon, we're sitting here tonight as believers. Tell us two things we should be doing. Voting. <laughs> um, standing for local councils. Um, praying for MPs, praying for Parliament, praying for the royal family, the Queen. Uh, maybe those things are not on the agenda of churches as, as they ought to be. Someone asked the question, had we ought to be looking for a Spurgeon in these times? And I'm thinking in view of the fact that we're fighting in Afghanistan and our bankers and other commercial interests are making our money disappear at alarming rates, can we not expect him over the horizon fairly soon? <laughs> well, I, um, I would go back to Spurgeon's comments uh, that, that there are such things as national judgments for national sins. And um, maybe we are slow to react or we don't know how to respond you know, when calamities come upon the nation. And the, uh, I, we just need to pray that um, God will make uh, the church and the nation uh, aware or that the church would make the nation aware of, uh, of God and his judgments and what God feels about sin and how God uh, can deal with the nation to bring it to its senses. We ought to pray that um, you know, these things will have an effect and wake people up. And certainly you know, money, you know, it's a bit like the plagues in Egypt, isn't it? Uh, money is the God, isn't it, of this age? Um, isn't God you know, seeking to bring down that God of money and destroy people's trust in, in money. I, I, I speak to a lot of ordinary Christians and they are concerned about what's going on and they're very grateful that there are organisations like the Christian Institute and others that are giving them good information. Mm. But um, I, I often speak to, to church leaders mm. and they are somewhat less concerned and somewhat nervous about straying into this area. Mm. And why mm. is that? Mm. Um, I don't know cowardice um, I, as I say Spurgeon had a very big personality and he, he carried it off he, he, he got away with it and uh, also he had a big big congregation I think that gives you a kind of authority with people doesn't it um, and I'm sure that it's a reflection of the general spiritual climate that most ministers are nervous, really, about uh, the effect of putting their heads above the parapets. They're relatively small congregations, struggling to make the gospel known, wanting to focus on what they see as their main goal. The atmosphere, the, 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 the context doesn't encourage confidence, uh, whereas maybe sorry, a, there was Spurgeon's personality, but also, B, he had this uh, great buttress of uh, thousands of people flocking to hear him. Uh, every week. Sorry, just to, to come back on Mike's question about ministers being nervous to speak out, I, I, I would encounter the same thing. But on our opponent's side, there are ministers and liberal theologians 
who are tripping over themselves to speak in favour of undermining God's word, casting doubt on issues of biblical morality. What would Spurgeon have done in the face of the present-day theological liberalism? Mm. I, I think, look at, looking at it from a slightly different angle, the, um, uh, there are bishops and leading churchmen that do speak out about sins, but they're the wrong sins. I mean, the sins of the day are all ecological sins, and they're getting ever so passionate about um, the planet, and those are the worst sins, whilst, of course, ignoring wholesale what we would see and what the Bible would see as being the real uh, sins uh, of the nation um, before God. But I'm sure that Spurgeon would, would address what the real sins were, um, and he, you'd have a very robust attitude uh, to those that glossed over that. Um, I mean, I'm sure that Spur, you know, the, uh, the attitude and the public utterances of bishops, not just the Church of England, but of all the leading religious, uh, the institutions, the institutional church that would give Spurgeon grist to his mill, uh, basically. 